Welcome to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast. Come for the science, stay for the stories. For news, interviews, videos, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org. This week on the podcast, two stories about mathematical networks from Natalie Wolchover. First, a theorem for coloring a large class of perfect graphs could ease the way for a long-sought proof. Then, a story from our archives on using math models to prevent the next big network failure. First, theorists draw closer to perfect coloring by Natalie Wolchover. Four years ago, the mathematician Maria Chudnovsky faced an all-too-common predicament. How to seat 120 wedding guests, some of whom did not get along, at a dozen or so conflict-free tables. Luckily, the problem fell square in her realm of expertise. She conceived of the guests as nodes in a network, with links between incompatible nodes. Her task was to color in the nodes using a spectrum of colors representing the different tables. As long as connected nodes never had the same color, there would be no drama at the reception. As a master of this pursuit, known as graph coloring, Chudnovsky did the whole thing in her head and finished the seating chart in no time. My husband was very impressed, she said. Networks of related objects, be they nodes or wedding guests, are known to mathematicians as graphs. And graph coloring is the much-studied act of partitioning these objects into conflict-free sets. Most graphs, with their tangle of interconnections, are impossible to color with a limited palette. The larger they are, the more colors you need. Moving from node to node, alternating between colors, you inevitably get into traffic jams that force you to pull new hues out of the box. Likewise, in the real world, seating charts, meeting schedules, and delivery routes can seldom be made optimal. But since the 1960s, mathematicians have escaped these coloring frustrations by working with so-called perfect graphs, which behave very nicely with respect to coloring, said Chivnovsky, a 38-year-old math professor at Princeton University. Perfect graphs are, by definition, colorable with the most limited palette possible. When coloring a graph, every node in a mutually connected cluster, or clique, must receive a distinct color, so any graph needs at least as many colors as the number of nodes in its largest clique. In most graphs, you need many more colors than this, but in perfect graphs you do not. As the French graph theorist Claude Burge defined them in 1961, perfect graphs require a number of colors exactly equal to the size of their largest clique. The chromatic number must also equal the clique number for every subset of a perfect graph formed by deleting some of its nodes. This perfection rarely arises in the real world, but the property has made perfect graphs much easier to analyze and prove theorems about than their imperfect counterparts. Yet, after half a century, an obvious question about perfect graphs remains unanswered. How do you actually color them? Perfect graphs are the graphs that are designed to work well for coloring, so it's really annoying that we don't know a good way to color perfect graphs, said Paul Seymour, a graph theorist also at Princeton. For a mathematician, a problem like that is a magnet. You want to be able to fix the issue. 
Now, Chudnovsky and collaborators are taking significant steps toward a theorem for coloring all perfect graphs. They've spent the past few years nibbling off different pieces of the pie, said Alan Tucker, a mathematician at Stony Brook University proving color theorems for ever larger subclasses of perfect graphs. This month, in their most general result yet, Chudnovsky, together with Irene Lowe, Frederick Maffray, Nicholas Trottignon, and Christina Voskovich posted a theorem for coloring all perfect graphs except those containing tricky arrangements of four nodes called squares. It gives confidence that the general case might be solved, said Gerard Kunujol, a mathematician at Carnegie Mellon University. The hope is that history might repeat itself. Fifteen years ago, researchers raced to prove a theorem establishing the recipe for perfect graphs. After Kornujol, Voskovich and Michel Conforti proved the theorem for square-free perfect graphs in 2001. The general case came next, Chudnovsky said. It was in 2002 that Chudnovsky, along with Seymour, then her Ph.D. advisor, and two more collaborators proved the strong perfect graph theorem, establishing what it takes to be a perfect graph. Their proof, which was published in the Annals of Mathematics in 2006, filled 150 pages. But the strong perfect graph theorem provides a surprisingly simple recipe for perfection. As Burge correctly guessed 54 years ago, a graph is perfect when it does not contain any arrangements of five or more nodes called odd holes, or odd anti-holes. An odd hole is a closed-loop path through part of a graph that passes through an odd number of nodes. If you drew the graph on paper and cut along this path with scissors, you would cut a hole in the paper. In an odd anti-hole, the nodes are connected to all but their nearest neighbors, forming a star-like shape. To see why these oddities render graphs imperfect, consider, for instance, a five-hole, which looks like a pentagon. Its clique number is two, since only pairs of consecutive nodes are connected. But try to color the five-hole using only two colors, alternating, for instance, between blue and green, and you soon get into trouble. The fifth node has a blue neighbor on one side and a green neighbor on the other. A third color is needed. Three holes, unlike larger odd holes, are allowed to exist in perfect graphs because their clique number is three. Real-world graphs such as conference schedules, the Manhattan subway system, or the human neural network typically contain odd holes, making the study of perfect graphs primarily an intellectual exercise. And yet, the class of perfect graphs allows you to develop sophisticated techniques that you can use in other classes, said Voskovich, a professor at the University of Leeds in the United Kingdom. Even perfect graphs can be tremendously complex, demanding detailed consideration of each of their umpteen internal structures and seldom submitting to elegant, concise proofs. The discrete pieces just don't yield to overall theories, Tucker said. In their new theorem for coloring all perfect graphs that lack squares, also known as four holes, Chudnovsky, Lowe, Maffray, Trottignon, and Voskovich took a divide-and-conquer approach, essentially breaking the graphs up into parts, coloring the parts, and then gluing them together again. To color a given graph, their first step is to scour the graph for a structure called a prism, which consists of a pair of three holes connected to each other via three paths. 
Next, depending on how the prism attaches to the rest of the graph, the researchers partition the graph into two parts, left and right, with a set of nodes serving as a hinge between them. In general, this hinge might contain a square, but because there are too many possible ways to color hinges with squares, the current proof leaves out these tricky cases. If either the left or right part contains another prism within it, the researchers must break it up again, and so on until no more prisms remain. Here, graphs with squares again cause trouble, requiring too many partitions for the coloring procedure to work efficiently. Once neither left nor right contain a prism, then they can be colored in. The researchers proved that there is an efficient procedure for coloring both the left part and hinge together and the right part and hinge together. Typically, the two different colorings of the hinge won't agree. A final step switches the colors of neighboring nodes until they match up. Now, only cases with squares remain unsolved. Experts disagree about how close the researchers have come to a perfect graph coloring theorem. In Voskovich's opinion, the square-free case of perfect graphs retains all the structural complexity of the perfect graph. It's very close to the general case. Kornujol, on the other hand, said, I think it's still a big step. The five collaborators will meet in Grenoble, France in December to discuss ways to generalize their proof. We did a good step. But there are many steps more to be done, said Trottignon, a mathematician and computer scientist at École Normale Supérieure in Lyon, France. My feeling now is that this problem will be solved. Before this step of square-free graphs, I would have said no. If the researchers succeed in proving a theorem for coloring all perfect graphs, some say it would mark the end of an era. To me, that's the last very big open question about them, said Cornu Joel. Second, Treading Softly in a Connected World by Natalie Wolchover Jean Stanley never walks downstairs without holding the handrail. For a fit 71-year-old, he is deathly afraid of breaking his hip. In the elderly, such breaks can trigger fatal complications, and Stanley, a professor of physics at Boston University, thinks he knows why. Everything depends on everything else, he said. Stanley and his colleagues discovered the mathematics behind what he calls the extreme fragility of interdependency. In a system of interconnected networks, like the economy, city infrastructure, or the human body, their model indicates that a small outage in one network can cascade through the entire system, touching off a sudden catastrophic failure. First reported in 2010 in the journal Nature, the findings spawned more than 200 related studies, including analyses of the nationwide blackout in Italy in 2003, the global food price crisis of 2007 and 2008, and the flash crash of the United States stock market on May 6, 2010. In isolated networks, a little damage will only lead to a little more, said Shlomo Havlin, a physicist at Bar-Ilan University in Israel who co-authored the 2010 paper. Now we know that because of dependency between networks, you can have an abrupt collapse. 
While scientists remain cautious about using the results of simplified mathematical models to re-engineer real-world systems, some recommendations are beginning to emerge. Based on data-driven refinements, new models suggest interconnected networks should have backups, mechanisms for severing their connections in times of crisis, and stricter regulations to forestall widespread failure. There's hopefully some sweet spot where you benefit from all the things that networks of networks bring you without being overwhelmed by risk, said Raisa D'Souza, a complex systems theorist at the University of California, Davis. To understand the vulnerability of having nodes in one network depend on nodes in another, consider the smart grid, an infrastructure system in which power stations are controlled by a telecommunications network that in turn requires power from the network of stations. In isolation, removing a few nodes from either network would do little harm because signals could route around the outage and reach most of the remaining nodes. But in coupled networks, downed nodes in one automatically knock out dependent nodes in the other, which knock out other dependent nodes in the first, and so on. Scientists model this cascading process by calculating the size of the largest cluster of connected nodes in each network, where the answer depends on the size of the largest cluster in the other network. With the clusters interrelated in this way, a decrease in the size of one of them sets off a back-and-forth cascade of shrinking clusters. When damage to a system reaches a critical point, Stanley, Havlin, and their colleagues find that the failure of one more node drops all the network clusters to zero, instantly killing connectivity throughout the system. This critical point will vary depending on a system's architecture. In one of the team's most realistic coupled network models, an outage of just 8% of the nodes in one network, a plausible level of damage in many real systems, brings the system to its critical point. The fragility that's implied by this interdependency is very frightening, Stanley said. However, in another model recently studied by D'Souza and her colleagues, sparse links between separate networks actually help suppress large-scale cascades, demonstrating that network models are not one-size-fits-all. To assess the behavior of smart grids, financial markets, transportation systems, and other real interdependent networks, we have to start from the data-driven, engineered world and come up with the mathematical models that capture the real systems, instead of using models because they are pretty and analytically tractable, D'Souza said. In a series of papers in Nature Physics, economists and physicists use the science of interconnected networks to pinpoint risk within the financial system. In one study, an interdisciplinary group of researchers, including the Nobel Prize-winning economist Joseph Stiglitz, found inherent instabilities within the highly complex multi-trillion dollar derivatives market and suggested regulations that could help stabilize it. Irina Vedenska, a professor of finance at Boston University who collaborates with Stanley, custom-fit a coupled network model around data from the 2008 financial crisis. Her and her colleagues' analysis published in February in Scientific Reports, show that modeling the financial system as a network of two networks, banks and bank assets, where each bank is linked to the assets it held in 2007, correctly predicted which banks would fail 78% of the time. We consider this model as potentially useful for systemic risk stress testing for financial systems, said Vedenska, whose research is financially supported by the European Union's Forecasting Financial Crisis Program.
As globalization further entangles financial networks, she said, regulatory agencies must monitor sources of contagion, concentrations in certain assets, for example, before they can cause epidemics of failure. To identify these sources, it's imperative to think in the sense of networks of networks, she said. Scientists are applying similar thinking to infrastructure assessment. Leonardo Duenas Osorio, a civil engineer at Rice University, is analyzing how lifeline systems respond to recent natural disasters. When an 8.8 magnitude earthquake struck Chile in 2010, for example, most of the power grid was restored after just two days, aiding emergency workers. The swift recovery, Duenas Osorio's research suggests, occurred because Chile's power stations immediately decoupled from the centralized telecommunications system that usually controlled the flow of electricity through the grid, but which was down in some areas. Power stations were operated locally until the damage in other parts of the system subsided. After an abnormal event, the majority of the detrimental effects occur in the very first cycles of mutual interaction, said Duenas Osorio, who is also studying New York City's response to Hurricane Sandy. So when something goes wrong, we need to have the ability to decouple networks to prevent the back-and-forth effects between them. D'Souza and Duenas Osorio are collaborating to build accurate models of infrastructure systems in Houston, Memphis, and other American cities in order to identify system weaknesses. Models are useful for helping us explore alternative configurations that could be more effective, Duenas Osorio explained. And as interdependency between networks naturally increases in many places, we can model that higher integration and see what happens. Scientists are also looking to their models for answers on how to fix systems when they fail. We are in the process of studying what is the optimal way to recover a network, Havlin said. When networks fail, which node do you fix first? The hope is that networks of networks might be unexpectedly resilient for the same reason that they are vulnerable. As Duanias Osorio put it, by making strategic improvements, can we have what amounts to positive cascades, where a small improvement propagates much larger benefits? These open questions have the attention of governments around the world. In the U.S., the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, an organization tasked with safeguarding national infrastructure against weapons of mass destruction, considers the study of interdependent networks its top mission priority in the category of basic research. Some defense applications have emerged already, such as a new design for electrical network systems at military bases. But much of the research aims at sorting through the mathematical subtleties of network interaction. We're not yet at the let's-engineer-the-internet-differently level, said Robin Burke, an information scientist and former DTRA program manager who led the agency's focus on interdependent networks research. A fair amount of it is still basic science. Desperately needed science. You're listening to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast, with music by Poddington Bear. I'm Leah Alfonso. For news, interviews, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org.